It is 9.30 on this Sunday morning. Time to send our microphones out to St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere for the morning Bible class on KFUO, the messenger of good news. Good morning. morning. The Lord be with you. you. Welcome to Bible study here at St. Paul's. My name is Jeff Kloa. And uh, uh, today, a little shift of topic. We've been working on the book of Acts. Really, just for a couple of months. When did we start? About uh, April, maybe? Yeah. We got through almost two chapters, so that's not too bad. Uh, But uh, this will be my last week teaching this class. And uh, so I thought I'd, uh, rather than finish off those two words, bud, about, uh, where do you go? Over there. You're going to confuse me now. Sitting in the wrong seat. Um, Rather than finish off those couple of words in Acts 2, do a little bit of a greatest hits from uh, Dr. Vels and his long teaching of uh, Matthew and Mark, uh, which I finished last year, and a parable which occurs uh, both in Mark's gospel and also is, in fact, the gospel reading for today from Matthew 13, the parable of the sower, which uh, fortunately uh, is not the sermon for today. So it works out pretty well. And, and the reason is, this uh, struck me to do this today, this past week I was in uh, Portland, Oregon, teaching a week-long workshop for uh, deacons who are colloquizing to become pastors. Uh, and they're serving in very, you know, out in the Northwest and in California, in Idaho, uh, very small congregations, uh, 12 people, 30 people. And uh, um, the word struggles, right, especially in the Northwest. It's difficult to see the success of the word. So my job was to help them uh, understand what the Bible is, how it's authoritative, and especially how do, you, how do we read this? Uh, how do we teach this word? Uh, how do you read a gospel text, an Old Testament text, an epistle text? So I chose the, uh, as a parable example, this parable from Mark 4, which I think is, is actually a good reminder for us regularly about... Uh, the, the ministry of the word, that is the word that Jesus sends out and how it comes to us in spite of uh, seeming failure. All right. So for the opening prayer, I'll, uh, this is out of the, the hymnal, but it's a, it's a prayer for the blessing on the word. Let's, let's bow our heads. Lord Jesus Christ, giver and perfecter of our faith, We thank and praise you for continuing among us the preaching of your gospel for our instruction and edification. Send your blessing upon the word which has been spoken to us, and by your Holy Spirit increase our saving knowledge of you, that day by day we may be strengthened into the divine truth and remain steadfast in your grace. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay. So, uh, Mark chapter 4, and we'll do a little bit of background, uh, go through the text, and then uh, uh, pull in some, some implications. The, the key verse, really, in this opening section, the parable of the sower in Mark 4, verses uh, really 1 through 20, is verse 9 where Jesus uh, speaks the parable of the sower doesn't give the interpretation yet. And then at the end of the parable, right, some 30, some 60, 
uh, some a hundred fold is their harvest, is their fruit. And verse 9, he said, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, that's kind of a troubling passage, right? Because it implies that some people hear and some people don't hear. And what's the determination as to whether they hear or not? What's that? Well, well, okay, you're jumping ahead. You're a good Lutheran, right? But in the text, you either have ears or you don't have ears. Right? Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. So there's, there's a bit of a, you know, stand up and take notice here. Because you might not get what I'm saying. And so in verse 10, when they were alone, those around him with the 12, so this group with the disciples, ask him the parables. So, so they got it, right? They realized that we better figure out what this means, otherwise we're going to be lost, right? Left behind. And so they come up and ask Jesus the parable. All right. So the, the theme here in Mark 4 is how do we hear the word? And, and maybe even a step beyond that, how is the word heard when it is sent out? Why does it work? Holy Spirit, right? And why does it not work? So I'll start with a, I don't know if they still use this commercial or not, but remember this guy on Verizon, right? Can you hear me now? They switch companies? Yeah, he went to Sprint. He went to Sprint. Oh, see, that's how much I watch TV. Um, yeah, well, replace the logo with Sprint, apparently. Can you hear me, right? Can you hear me? It's the message of Jesus here at this point in his ministry. So he's, he's three chapters into his ministry. His baptism happened, of course, in chapter 1. It all happens pretty quick, as you know, in the Gospel of Mark. It seems like it's been maybe a couple of weeks. <laughs> and, and there's this uh, growing uh, crowd size, right? They start to follow. They fill up a house. Then they overflow the house. Now in chapter 4... They're gathered on a seashore with Jesus on the boat to teach them. So the crowds keep getting bigger. But at the same time, if you look at 3.6, after Jesus has three uh, consecutive sort of conflicts about things having to do with the law and the Sabbath, Jesus heals on a Sabbath, uh, verse 6, going out the Pharisees immediately with the Herodians gave counsel against him how they might destroy him. So you got the religious leaders, the Pharisees, you got the political group, the Herodians, and they're both trying to kill Jesus. Already two plus chapters into the gospel. So you have this, this uh, uh, um, uh, two tracks going in the gospel of Mark, and, and again, in all the gospels. Some people follow and some people reject. And here the rejection is not simply, yeah, you know, I'm not interested. The rejection is, we want to kill him. Okay? So uh, this sets up the parables then in Mark uh, chapter 4. And for a little background in our context, I just pulled, maybe you saw this study done a couple years ago by the Pew, uh, uh, Pew Forum, uh, the Religious Landscape Study. How are people responding to the gospel? And this is a survey of uh, self-reported 
uh, uh, connection to uh, faith, religion, churches uh, in America. And uh, the same study was done in 2007 and repeated in 2014. And you might, have, you might recall this. The big takeaway was, was this change from the, what they call the nuns, those who have no religious affiliation. In uh, 2007, 16% of the American population said they have no religious affiliation. In 2014, 23%. Seven years, 7% of the population of the US, that's what, 21 million people, have severed connections with any religion whatsoever. Uh, evangelical, Protestant, which is where we would basically fall, declined only slightly, 26.3% to 25.4%. Roman Catholicism declined a bit. Mainline Protestants lost about 20% of their membership. Uh, and uh, non-Christian faiths increased only slightly, 47 to 5.9%. Uh, but notice, you know, there's a lot of issue and certainly uh, really so we need to understand and, and uh, bring the gospel to, say, Islam. But that's only a tiny increase compared to those who lost any connection with the church whatsoever. So the word has been heard uh, for centuries here in the U.S. And how are people responding? Uh, even more challenging is the, is the age problem. Age problem. It's a problem for all of us, isn't it, right? Um, but if you, if you look generation by generation, right, those born before 1945, uh, only 11% are unaffiliated with the church. 30% are evangelical Protestants. Baby boomers, 46 to 64, still pretty high participation, although you notice here, uh, less affiliation, 17% unaffiliated. Gen Xers, 65 to 80, declines slightly more, and the number of unaffiliated increases to 23%. Older millennials, younger millennials, 1990 to 1996, right? Notice only 19% connected to an evangelical Protestant church, 36% unaffiliated with any religious group. So the numbers are rather, yes. We have a tendency to blame the generation. Yeah. I think you're right, Paul. If you look down, you see where it, where it goes, right? I just blame the baby boomers for everything. Because <laughs> that's the generation before me, right? <laughs> Sorry. You're on the cusp. You're on the cusp, Paul. All right. All right. So, you know, and, 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 and this is really troubling. You know, it's, it's uh, disconcerting. Uh, uh, it certainly causes anxiety and fear, uh, both as individuals, as we see this, uh, see what happens in, in, among people we know, even in our own families. Uh, it's certainly a challenge for our churches, uh, indeed. So the question comes, right, uh, why is the word not working? Or what do we do about it? Maybe it's another way to say it. What do we do about problems like this? Right. I'll do a little, just a, briefly, I pulled some St. Louis stats from the same survey. 69% uh, of people in St. Louis are absolutely certain that there's a God. 17% are fairly certain. So that's, you know, pretty good numbers. Only 1% are 
are pretty sure there's not a God in St. Louis. Uh, attendance at religious services in St. Louis, now again, these are self-reported numbers, <laughs> so, so you know how self-reported numbers work, right? Uh, but 68% uh, of people in St. Louis say they go once or twice a month or a few times a year, right? Uh, okay, self-reported, but still not too bad. Uh, participation in prayer, scripture study, or religious education groups. So now things get a little more dicey. 26% uh, in St. Louis attend a Bible study at least once a month. So are they encountering the word or being countered by the word? Uh, scripture reading. 43% of St. Louis people say they read the Bible at least once or twice a month. That's not too bad. Um, Oops. Uh, so the question is, uh, uh, why are people responding to the word the way they are? Is this surprising? And more importantly, uh, what do we do about it? How do we understand uh, biblically and theologically uh, what is happening and, and what do we do about it? So the first thing to realize is that rejection of Jesus and his message is not new. Okay. Uh, in in four one, well, let me skip over this. Uh, well, let, let's do this. Four one to three. Uh, chapter Mark four one to three. Again, he began to teach along the sea, and a great crowd uh, gathered toward him. With the result that he, this is a great Greek phrase, uh, having embarked into the boat in order to sit on the sea. Well, okay, he's, he's not sitting on the sea. He's sitting in the boat on the sea, but you, you get the point. All the crowd was toward the sea upon the land. So, so here's something like this, Sea of Galilee. You've got uh, a, a cove of some kind, the crowd on the shore, and Jesus is doing the you know, natural amplification, uh, sitting on the boat so it echoes, and, and lots of people can hear Verse 2 is the, is the key phrase, though. He began teaching them many things in parables, and he said to them in his teaching, listen. Now, I know they put the, the listen in verse 3, uh, but you might actually better connect it to the end of verse 2. Because the whole point of what's going on in... Uh, in uh, uh, this section of chapter 4 is Jesus' encouragement to continue listening to the word in spite of times when it looks like it is not working. Right? So he says to them many things in his parable, and he says to them in his teachings, in his teaching, listen. Listen. In spite of what you see happening around you, in spite of what other people are responding to Jesus, uh, the encouragement here is to listen. So this is a pretty pivotal time in the Gospel of Mark. As I mentioned, in chapter 3, the crowds start to grow. Uh, in 3.7, you've got crowds, crowds, crowds mentioned three times. Right? Mark is emphasizing that lots of people are flocking to Jesus, and it seems like things are going pretty well. But, again, not everyone believes, including in 3.20... His family. 
So in Mark 3.20, he comes into a house, or his house, or a house, or the house, uh, somewhere. Uh, again, the crowd gathered with the result that he was not able to eat, not even bread. So he's so busy, uh, crowds are so great, that he doesn't have time to stop at McDonald's, you know, drive through on the way to his house, you know, kind of a thing. So his family, upon hearing, his family went out to seize him, literally, to, to grab him, for they were saying that he is out of his mind. So you got, on the one hand, crowds coming to Jesus, and what does his family think? He's a little bit nuts, right? Now, why might his family think he's a little bit nuts? What's he been doing for 30 years? Yeah, normal, good, carpenter kind of stuff, helping his dad out, running the business, building stuff, right? He goes down to talk to this guy, John the Baptist, and what happens? All of a sudden, he's saying weird stuff, right? And lots of people are coming, and he's doing this casting out demons thing, and the, the Pharisees want to kill him, right? All of a sudden, he, went, he goes out and talks to this guy, and everything has changed, right? Uh, even his family, who's known him for a long time, is just a nice little kid, now all of a sudden thinks he's a little bit goofy, right? Now, this is the first time we meet his family in the Gospel of Mark. It gets fixed later on. Uh, but even those closest to Jesus are not hearing what Jesus is saying. Right? There's something that's preventing them from, from getting what he's talking about. So his own family, uh, in verse 22, the scribes having come down from Jerusalem kept on saying that he has Beelzebul and that by the ruler of demons he is casting out the demons. So you got the scribes from Jerusalem. What's important about Jerusalem? Obviously, they, they're the center of religious everything, right? Here's this guy up in Galilee, in, in Hickland, right? Uh, uh, saying all this kind of stuff, and the religious authorities from, you know, the headquarters have to come and explain what's happening using a different narrative, right? Why are these crowds gathering? What is Jesus doing in the casting out of demons? Their argument is... Well, he's, he's demonic himself. He's got some kind of demonic authority by which he's casting out demons. Now, we won't go into Jesus' response here, except to note that the question uh, set up in chapter 3 is, is Jesus' ministry, is his teaching and uh, doing uh, the signs of the kingdom of God, is it being a success or is it being a failure? Are things working out great? Or are they working out terribly? Uh, will the word succeed or will it not? Right. So just take a step back for a second here. Uh, if you're a disciple of Jesus, uh, which path would you like it to go? Yeah, I mean, fairly obviously, if this guy is your teacher... Uh, and he's called you, and you've now followed him, and you've left your nets, and you've left your fathers uh, and his, and his uh, hired workers in their boats, 
Uh, you're kind of hoping this works out, right? You don't want to join uh, the, I'll make one last St. Louis Cardinals joke. <laughs> right? You want to get traded to the Cubs, not to the Cardinals, right? <laughs> yeah, all right. Ain't working out so much this year, is it? Yeah. Anyway, uh, you don't want to be on a losing team, right? Uh, so this is all kind of confusing to the disciples. Uh, he's doing all kinds of great stuff, teaching all kinds of great stuff with authority, and, and yet many people, including the important religious people from Jerusalem, are not uh, understanding, and in fact, they're giving an alternative interpretation, right? He's not doing this by God's authority. He's not doing this by the Spirit. Uh, rather, he's doing it by demonic authority. And, of course, Jesus deals with that uh, in the sin against the Holy Spirit, uh, uh, which is rejecting Jesus, which is unbelief. So the parables in Mark chapter 4 are there to help uh, the disciples and, of course, help us understand the Word. Uh, what is the word? Why is it sent out? And why do people respond the way they do to the word? And when they respond uh, uh, in rejection, what should our response to that be? What do we do? So the parables are about hearing. He who has ears, let him hear. And again, the obvious point is everybody has ears, right? We all have ears, but not everybody is hearing. Not everybody is receiving, understanding, responding, following. Okay. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So the parable of the sower in 3 through 9, or 3 through 8 really, um, well, let's just read the parable. And see if you know the answers. Now, you probably know a little bit because you've read the Bible before, but, but let's go through it. Uh, listen, verse 3. Look, the sower went out in order to sow. And it happened in the act of sowing, some fell along the road, and the birds came and devoured it. And other seed, fill in the blank, fell upon the rocky places where it did not have much earth, and immediately it sprang up because it did not have deep depth of earth or deep soil. And when the sun rose up, it was scorched, and because it did not have root, it was withered. And other seed fell upon the thorns. And it sprang up, and the thorn, uh, uh, sorry, the thorns sprang up and choked it, and it did not give fruit. And others, plural here, notice now, uh, fell upon the excellent soil, or good soil, uh, and gave fruit, rising up and increasing, and bringing forth some 30 and some 60 and some 100. And he said, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. So notice he doesn't give an interpretation or explanation of the parable, right? Uh, seems to be a pretty straightforward story about a, well, farmer, right? And when you read parables of Jesus, uh, uh, there's always some element that is 
uh, just sort of everyday life and expected, right? You have farmers, you got people who sow seed, right? It happens all the time. But there's also usually and almost always in the parable something that is uh, not normal, okay? Something that is not true to life uh, uh, as understood by people in the first century uh, here in Judea or in Galilee. So what is unusual about this farmer? What strikes you as, as unusual, even if you don't know first century uh, agriculture? He's not very smart about where he sows his seed, right? So I'm not a farmer. I'm from Chicago. Uh, uh, but my understanding is when you plant, uh, let's say, corn, they now have these big machines that run on uh, GPS. They, they keep exactly perfect rows so that the spacing between the uh, seeds as they grow up is absolutely perfect for the uh, right leaf size so it gets big enough to produce the, the fruit but not so big that it produces a lot of leaves and not fruit. It, it drops, it's, it, it goes very slowly. A guy up in Washington was explaining this to me. Uh, something like two and a half miles an hour so that it doesn't shake the seed distributing thing and get it off by a centimeter or two because you want to get exactly the right spacing. So you have now all this computer generated stuff that produces you know, one seed every six inches apart or eight inches apart. Everything is absolutely perfect. So you get the absolutely perfect yield. See, that's what a smart farmer would do is he places every seed in exactly the right place because if your seed doesn't grow, what have you just done? You've wasted it, right? It is never going to bear fruit. Uh, we uh, we uh, had to refill some grass seed on our yard, and, and uh, uh, it's actually kind of annoying because you, you buy this grass seed, and you follow all directions, and you water it, and, you know, I feel like this parable, like 25% of the seed grew, you know? My water bill is going to be ridiculous, but... but uh, uh, here, this sower doesn't do the one seed, one uh, harvest. He throws his seed out everywhere, right? Now, yes, there is no mechanical seed spreader. There is no uh, scientific method to this. But no farmer in his right mind is going to throw his seed on a sidewalk. Nobody's going to do that, right? And even if you're really desperate, throwing it among the rocks, not going to work. I mean, you know it's going to happen, right? You've got sh shallow soil. It's hot. It's warm. So it springs up quickly. Of course it does, right? And then it can't sustain because there's no water and it withers and dies. That's what happened to most of my grass, right? St. Louis heat, no water. It's gone, right? Thorns you could kind of understand, right? There's plenty of crabgrass in my yard. I just mowed it off and threw the seed on it, so fine, right? You can kind of understand that. Give him a break, right? But this farmer doesn't care, right? He's, he's reckless with his seed. He throws it out anywhere as if he has an unlimited supply of seed, right? Who cares if it falls on a sidewalk? Who cares if it falls on Iraqi places? He just throws it out. As if it doesn't matter. Yeah, Franzman, we just read the hymn and be done with Bible study. Right. 
But that's that's exactly the point. Is there a sense of urgency also in that way of broadcasting? Uh, well, that's a good question. I, you know, there isn't really any verbs or adverbs here relating to haste. It really has to do more with waste. <laughs> there you go. Not haste, but waste. No, he's, he's, it's just this, he's throwing it out. And no, nah, he doesn't seem to be in a hurry, right? What's that? Of, that's, that's your entire, you invest in seed so you can have a harvest next year, and from that you buy and invest in more. It's an investment, right? So to throw it on the sidewalk, even if you're in a hurry, I mean, come on, how hard is it to not throw it on the sidewalk? It doesn't seem to be that hard, right? Uh, there's a, well, I won't use that image. It's on the radio. Okay. Um, so, yeah, he's, 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 he is a very poor farmer. At least in the sense of he is not expecting, well, I shouldn't say that. Uh, he is expecting a profit. Uh, uh, he just thinks he has an unlimited supply of seed. Right? He just throws it everywhere. So uh, uh, what do you do with the parable? In verse 9 again, he said, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Verse 10, and when he was alone, I read this earlier, those uh, around him with the twelve asked him the parables. So this is one of the rare occasions in the Gospel of Mark where the disciples actually do something right. And you remember what happens in other places? They, they, this, Jesus does something or says something, and what do they do? Right? They ask one another what this means. Right? He calms the storm. Right? They ask one another, who is this man? Right? They're coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration. They ask one another, what is this resurrection from the dead that Jesus is talking about? Right? Uh, uh, come after me, the, the discipleship stuff. They ask one another, what does this mean? Right? Generally, when the disciples ask one in fact, every time, when they ask one another uh, what Jesus is doing or saying, they are simply pooling ignorance. Right? They don't know. And asking one another uh, simply leaves them in ignorance. But here they actually do something right. Rather than asking one another the meaning of the parable, they go and they ask Jesus. So, not a bad idea. He says to them, key verse, To you is given to know... No, sorry. To you is given the mystery of the kingdom of God. Notice that. To you, uh, but it's the first uh, word in the verse, it's emphatic. To you is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those outside, all things happen in parables. So let's just stop there for a second. How many groups of people are there? Uh, according to Jesus. Two. Two, right? The disciples who are given to, to know the mystery of the kingdom, who is given the mystery of the kingdom. Uh, notice it's a passive verb. You didn't figure this out on your own. I am giving you the mystery of the kingdom. To those outside, I'm not giving the mystery of the kingdom. Right? And to them, all things come, all things happen in parables. Now, 
why would Jesus not explain the mystery of the kingdom to those who are not in the kingdom? Maybe I stated it in a fairly obvious way, but they're not in the kingdom, right? So let's, let's continue with our Cubs-Cardinals analogy here. Uh, the Cubs uh, pitchers, every major league team, right, to develop a strategy for how to pitch to the other team, right? And they have their pitch charts, and they do all their computer analysis, and they know exactly how to pitch, you know, this guy low and away, this guy up and in, you know, this guy out of the strike zone, whatever. It's a secret, right? This is how you're going to come at your other team. Are the Cubs going to tell the Cardinals how they're going to pitch to the Cardinals? No, they're outside. They're not on the team. It is not given to them to know the mystery of the kingdom. Right. So there's two categories of people here. You, the disciples, who know that they should ask Jesus because they don't know what he's talking about. Right. But they know enough that they need to ask him. And then you got those who are outside who did not come and ask Jesus the mystery of the kingdom, right? And in fact, who think he's demonic and who want to kill him, right, earlier in the Gospel of Mark. So the two kind of hearers, right, obviously you who have ears and those outside who do not hear, right, who are not responding positively to Jesus' preaching of the kingdom, his preaching of the word. So why do the disciples hear? This is an important point for us. Why do they hear? Well, first of all, they're with Jesus. If you go back to 3, um, 3, 13 and following, is when he calls the disciples. So he goes up onto a mountain and he calls those whom he wished Uh, and they went up to him, or went away to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, for three purposes. One, in order that they might be with him. Notice, with him, not separated, but with him. Uh, and, in order that he might send them out to preach. And, to have authority to cast out demons. In other words, the disciples have been chosen by Jesus to do exactly what he is doing. To be with him, to go out to preach, and to cast out demons. Right? So why do the disciples have ears to hear? It's because Jesus gave them the ears to hear. He called them. He chose them. He appointed them. He gave them authority uh, to preach and to teach. Right? They're with Jesus. Uh, furthermore, uh, because they're with Jesus, they know that they better ask at least at this point. Uh, they can't stay in their ignorance. They first know that they need to ask, that is, that they don't understand and that they do need to hear. And, even more importantly, they know who to ask. They don't ask one another the meaning of the parable. They ask Jesus. Right? What is all this about? What are you doing in this teaching and preaching of your kingdom? So they've been called. They have been called uh, by Jesus through the Spirit to be his people, uh, to be with him. 
So in, uh, in 10 and 11, in contrast to pretty much the rest of the Gospel of Mark, uh, the disciples do something right. They know to go to Jesus. They know to ask. Uh, they know that they need to be given ears to hear. All right. So that's so far so good, right? Ears to hear. Problem comes in with the others who do not hear. So uh, uh, why does Jesus not tell them what he's doing? Why does he not just give them all the answers? Well, first, here, Jesus is revealing the mystery of the kingdom. Right? What am I doing? What is my work? What has the Father sent me to do? How will people respond to me? He's revealing the mystery of the kingdom, what God is now doing in him in order to restore people to himself. Right? So it's not secret in the sense of, you know, hey, here's a secret and I'm going to let you in on the story. But making known how God is bringing about his kingdom. Right? The mystery of the kingdom. Uh, this was God's plan from the beginning. Now he's fulfilling it in me. And it will happen as that word goes forth. Right? Um, uh, in other words, at this point, Jesus is not doing evangelism. If you go back to chapter 1, he's doing evangelism, right? First words out of his mouth, uh, uh, he goes up into Galilee and begins proclaiming, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the good news. That's evangelism. He's going out and sowing his seed all over the place. He's doing it in chapter 2 when the scribes are grumbling, when he heals the guy, remember, lowered through the roof? He's throwing his word out, Right? Uh, uh, he's doing it when he's teaching and debating about plucking grain on a Sabbath or healing man, uh, a man on a Sabbath. He's teaching him, right? Uh, but at the same time, are those scribes and Pharisees and a good number of the crowd hearing Jesus? No, right? They think he's demonic. Uh, they think he's insane, right? So again, why would you tell those outside what you are planning to do? What Jesus is doing here is not uh, evangelism in speaking the parables. He is speaking the word of God. And that word of God is heard sometimes as gospel, as the forgiveness of sins and new life. And that word of God is sometimes heard as law. Right? condemnation. It is not for me. I'm going to walk away. Right? Some people hear the word and respond. Some people hear the word and walk away. Now, is this unusual? Right? Is this unique? Uh, unfortunately, it's not. So in verse 12, Jesus explains his ministry and his teaching using Isaiah. So what Jesus is doing is exactly what Isaiah did uh, all the way back in 740 BC when uh, Isaiah was prophet to the southern kingdom. Verse 12, right? All things happen in parables, verse 11, in order that seeing they might see and not perceive and hearing they might hear and not comprehend lest they return and it be forgiven them. Now, that's pretty harsh, right? 
They see, but they don't perceive. They hear, but they do not understand. That that's kind of makes sense, but the hard verse, the hard line is the last one, right? Lest they return and it be forgiven them. Now, you guys know that when Jesus or the apostles quote the Old Testament, it's a good idea to go back and look at the entire context of the Old Testament. So here, Isaiah 6 is where this uh, verse is taken from. Very familiar passage. We use uh, part of it in our liturgy. It's Isaiah's call, uh, chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, the train of his robe filled the temple, the seraphs. They're calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Uh, the temple shook. And Isaiah, of course, when you see God, what's supposed to happen? You die, right? You've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? You know what's supposed to happen, right? Uh, so Isaiah says, woe to me. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. So Isaiah's a little worried at this point, right? One of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. He touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So how is Isaiah able to hear and not get zapped? Right. Well, first of all, the Lord put him there, right? Second of all, the Lord cleansed him. The Lord put a coal on his lips. He gave him to know the mystery of the kingdom. Right. Isaiah didn't figure this out on his own. Uh, he didn't, uh, uh, you know sorted out from his own understanding, he was taken and he was given the gift so that he could stand in the presence of God. So then verse 8, the story continues. We haven't yet gotten to the verse Jesus quotes. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me, send me. Right? Now, I suspect... Isaiah, when he, when he heard this voice saying, who will go, Isaiah probably said, get me out of here. I will do it because I'm still a little terrified of all this stuff, right? So Isaiah, right, uh, here I am, send me. Now here's Isaiah's commission. Here's Isaiah's uh, first call from the seminary, right? Go and tell this people in 740 B.C., be ever hearing but never understanding. Be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Well, that's pretty nice, isn't it? Isaiah's call is to go tell people, that God is not going to forgive you. Excellent. So these are people who now for 300 years have not done exactly what God told them to do. I'm going to take you into this land and you will enjoy all the things that I'm giving you, but you have to worship me. You have to destroy the high places of the false gods. Uh, you have to not 
uh, worship the gods of your neighbors. You have to trust me, even when Assyria threatens or Babylon threatens or Egypt threatens. And what does Israel do again and again and again? We're not going to trust God. We're going to try to figure this out on our own. And at this point, God sends Isaiah to say, enough is enough. Right? They are now going to hear a word of law, of judgment. So Isaiah, being a good you know, new pastor, says, how long do I have to stay in my first call? <laughs> right? For how long, O oh Lord? <laughs> yeah, three years, right? That's a minimum, right? That's what they tell you. Uh, well, it's even worse than that. He answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken, and even though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. And then you have the but, right? But, as the terebinth and oak leave stumps so when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. So everything's going to be cut down. Everything's going to be laid waste. And yet from that stump, what's going to spring up? Right? Notice that word, a seed. Right? What is the sower sowing out, throwing out? Seeds, right? So Israel has shown again and again and again that they are unfaithful. And, and as a result, now at this point, God is bringing about judgment. He's been patient. He's been long-suffering. But they're going to suffer. Uh, now it takes another 130 years for this finally to happen. Uh, when Babylon comes in and destroys Jerusalem in 586 B.C. Uh, but it happened. But in spite of the judgment, what does God always do? He leaves a remnant. He leaves a promise, right? I will make for myself a faithful people, right? I will leave this remnant behind so that you can be my witnesses beginning in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, right? Because somebody has to tell the nations that there is only one God. That he is Lord of the heavens and the earth. Right? That he is bringing about a salvation. Somebody has to be left who will hear and speak that word out. Uh, in Isaiah's time, you would say that, this, that that was a time, that judgment, a time for judgment. The judgment was going to be yep. preached. So by that... Uh, you're saying that in Jesus' time, by using this quote, he is, he is not evangelizing uh, in this word. He's bringing, it's the time of judgment. It's the time of judgment. Yep. Some people now see the Son of God face to face. The scriptural promises are being fulfilled right in front of their eyes. Uh, Blind are seeing, lame are walking, deaf hearing, and yet what is their response? Sorry, we want something else. Right? And so, at least part of Jesus' ministry 
is to bring about judgment. All right? So he's explaining so that the disciples understand why people are not receiving the good news of the kingdom. Now, it doesn't stop there, right? And we've got four minutes to finish this. <laughs> so verse 13, he says to them, Do you not know this parable? How will you understand any parable? And then he gives the explanation. The sower sows the word. And, and I, I think we should actually just kind of pause a second on that verse. Notice he doesn't say, I sow the word. He doesn't say, you sow the word. He says, the sower sows the word. Right? I think that's intentionally open-ended. It's not only the way Jesus' ministry will go, it's also the way the disciples' ministry will go, and it's also the way the, way the church's ministry will go anytime the word is spoken. Right? They sow the word. And what's going to happen? These are the ones that fall along the road where the word is sown, and when they hear, immediately Satan comes and snatches the word uh, which is sown in them. So nothing happens, right? It bounces off the sidewalk, and, and the crows or the robins, they come, or whatever there is in Palestine at this time, and they eat, uh, eat the seeds. Uh, these are the ones sown on the rocky places. When they hear the word, immediately they receive it with joy, right? It springs up immediately. And they do not have root, and this is a key phrase, they do not have root in themselves. Rather, they are temporary. When affliction or persecution on account of the word comes, immediately they fall away. Now, if you keep reading through the Gospel of Mark, what kind of things does Jesus uh, explain might be a problem for the disciples? Right? Persecution. Right? They will haul you before kings and rulers because of me. If anybody wants to follow me, let him take up his cross and follow me. Come after me and let him take up his cross and follow me. So there's going to be persecution because of the word. Uh, verse 18, others fell among the uh, thorns. And these are those who are hearing the word and the concerns of this age, the deceitfulness of wealth. And the desires for the other things upon entering in choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. All right. Again, you read through the rest of the Gospel of Mark and what happens, right? There's concerns for the things of this age. There's people who have a lot of stuff and walk away from Jesus, right? In other words, God is going to give you lots of stuff. Watch out because the stuff that God gives you might become a problem. Right, And then finally, the last group. These are the ones that fall on the excellent soil, having sown on the excellent soil. Whoever hears the word and receives it and bears fruit, some 30. Think that's a lot? How about 60? You think that's a lot? How about 100? In other words, uh, uh, when it does work, the results are unbelievable. Right, never happened before when it actually works. So I, I got thirty seconds to wrap this up. Um, uh, how many kinds of soil are there? It's a trick question. There's there's two, right? Those where the word the seed produces fruit, 
and those where it does not. Right. A uh, uh, <laughs> couple, couple takeaways from this. Uh, first, for those of us who are uh, hearing the word, the message for the parable of uh, the parable to us is uh, keep listening. Right. The word has been sown in us, and there are so many things that would pull us away from the word. Whether, you know, other things are more important, uh, uh, the concerns of this age, and we all know what those are, the deceitfulness of wealth, especially in our culture, is a, is a tremendous uh, pressure and challenge to the faith, right? For those of us who've heard the word, uh, this is a word of, of warning, right? Go back to Jesus. Ask him. Listen to him. Let the word be sown among you richly and deeply, right? Because he has called you and has invited you into this kingdom. To those outside, well, it's quite clearly a word of judgment, right? Uh, there's any number of reasons people reject the word, right? And is it still happening today? Yeah. But for the church, and, and this is where I kind of want to leave it, for the church, what is the lesson? What do we do when people reject the word? You keep sowing. You throw the word out. Wherever you can. Recklessly, right? Uh, uh, to kind of put it this way, seed is expensive, right? But how expensive is the word? How much does it cost to tell your neighbor about Jesus? How much does it cost to tell your kids about Jesus? Right. Keep sowing the word. You know what's going to happen, right? You know that 75% of the people are not going to get it. So in America, we're 25 or we're 5% ahead right now, apparently. Right? Or whatever number you want to say. 75% are not going to get it, but some will. And when they get it, God does amazing things. Right, a hundredfold uh, through the power of his word. So keep on sowing, uh, keep on listening, uh, because it is, it is the word that gives increase. So I want to, I thought I could do that in 50 minutes, silly me. Um, I want to close with this prayer, and it's actually uh, a collect that was prayed at St. Paul's today. It's the collect for the word, uh, originally written in 1662 for the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, I'd like to pray this together and close with this. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life. Amen. All right. Thanks. Just a note. Sorry, Billy. It's a little long. Uh, uh, past the, every, uh, sorry. The only Bible study here at St. Paul's will be the pastor's class over in the gym for the next uh, month or so. And uh, pastors are working on uh, kind of redoing this group in the fall. Hopefully that works. Uh, if you know a certain New Testament professor at Concordia Seminary who comes to this Bible study, call him up and tell him to do it. <laughs> um, uh, 
uh, uh, and for those of you on the radio, that will be broadcast. The pastor's class will be broadcast on the radio. So there will be a Bible study from St. Paul's next week on the radio. So, so thanks for listening and blessings. And I'll sign off here.